Chances are it is the first thing you hear every morning. What accompanies you through your day may be the last thing you hear before you go to bed, if you fall asleep to music from your computer or your phone. You are experiencing it right now. I am talking about computer audio, sounds coming from a computer. But how can what is essentially a glorified calculator reproduce some of the greatest pieces of music ever made? Well, this is what we will be looking at on this episode of Tech with Tommy. As always, I'm your host, Tommy. Just to clear out the basics. A modern smartphone is a computer. With the ability to send and receive phone calls. It really should be named a handheld computer. Or perhaps a mobile terminal. But before we can talk about how to make an overpriced glorified calculator sing. Let's very briefly sum up what sound is. Sound is what your ears detect when they hear vibrations. And those vibrations are changes in air pressure. Human ears can hear in frequencies from 20 to 20,000 Hertz, with the upper range decreasing by age. One Hertz means one cycle per second. 20,000 Hertz is therefore 20,000 cycles per second. By whatever means we make a computer, or anything else for that matter, create sound, the output has to end up as vibrations in the air inside that frequency range, or the human ear will not hear it. If we are trying to recreate the original sound, it also matters how well we are able to reproduce it. Yes, digital copies. Unlike anything else in the real world, do not degrade when you make a copy of them, but they are only ever as good as the input was in the first place. Garbage in, garbage out. There are, very broadly, three categories of computer sound. The CD sound, the MP3 and MP3-like file formats, and MIDI. MIDI is very special and not used as much as it used to be. But for a lot of people, it was a soundtrack to their childhood computer games. MIDI was standardized in 1983 as a way to connect musical instruments to computers. Unlike CD audio or MP3, it is not the sounds themselves that a computer stores, but how the sounds were created. No actual sound was recorded. The pitch, the tone, the pan the timing, and so forth, was. It is like going to the music store and buy the score with the notes on them, rather than the record. This means several things. The files are very, very tiny. 
a three-minute-long song I found had a MIDI file of 1.7 kilobyte. The lyrics to that song were almost half that size. For a small, memory-constrained computer in the 1980s, that was perfect. If that computer had to have the MP3 of that song, it would take up nearly 5 megabytes, about 3,000 times as much as the MIDI file. Worse, you couldn't play it for two reasons. One, the computer wasn't powerful enough, and the first program that could play it, WinPlay 3, wouldn't be released until 1995. You might think that it would require extra powerful computers to make use of MIDI files, but civilian computers at the time would have an external sound card that was responsible for playing, that is converting, the music into something humans can hear. That external sound card would have chips specifically designed to do the work required to play the MIDI files. A side effect of using MIDI is that it is very easy to remix and to change which instruments are used because the information is literally all there in the files. The downside is that because MIDI files essentially tells the computer to play a given note with a given instrument at a given pitch, pan and volume, different sound cards will play the same MIDI file but sound different. And not because one or the other is better, but because they use different samples for the instruments. A bigger issue is that there's no way to use it to play sounds other than instrument music. Most importantly, you can't use it to play human voices. There can be no MIDI podcasts. In a world where you have been able to have a thousand songs in your pocket for two decades, there just isn't that much value in stretching it out further. You are not going to sell a device that will allow you to have 5 million songs in your pocket as long as they have no lyrics in them. Today, MIDI is mostly used where it was originally intended, to make computers work with audio equipment and for music creation programs such as GarageBand. What we wanted all along was some way to faithfully represent exactly the way the music sounded when it was recorded. This brings us to the CD. Compact disc, or we finally have enough space to store a digital hi-fi version of your favorite song. Hi-fi is a bit of a surplus concept. You will sometimes see various amplifiers and other music gear advertised as hi-fi, which is technically true. Hi-fi just means high fidelity. Think low to no noise and a neutral representation of the sound you can hear. But by that measure, most recordings that have been made since the late 1940s have been hi-fi. Audio files will disagree, as will any place that makes their income selling you those expensive stereos. 
the expensive stereos may be better, but if you've ever heard a recording made before hi-fi became the norm, you'll appreciate just how little the difference is between any two modern stereos. And if you haven't heard it, some of those songs are now so old that they're out of copyright, meaning I can do with them whatever I want. So, enjoy. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. All of those recordings were made with analog equipment. How do you record something digitally? Remember, sound is fundamentally changes in air pressure. The easiest way to record changes is to record samples of how loud the sound is at some given points and then interpolate between them. That, uh, that leaves a question. How many sounds do we need? Especially since we want, or perhaps need, a perfect copy of the sound. At first, it may seem like we need infinitely many points, but it turns out that actually we need a lot less than that. Remember how I mentioned that you can hear from 20 to 20,000 hertz? That means that we don't care about that annoying sound at 50,000 hertz, since you can't hear it anyway. Given that, it has been proven that you can perfectly reconstruct a recording if you record the amplitude of the sound exactly twice as often as the highest frequency that you care about. I won't go into the proof. You're welcome to look up the Nyquist Shannon theorem yourself. If it sounds crazy, Think of it this way. There are infinitely many points on a straight line, but you only need to know two points to be able to recreate it perfectly. If you have more points, you can't use them. If you have three points, there is exactly one way for you to draw a parabola going through them, even though a given parabola also has infinite points. The key is that you know what shape the curve has to have, so you do know something about every one of the infinite points. With a sound wave, you know what the shape looks like, a sine wave. For those, you need to know two points on the curve and the maximum frequency the curve could be recorded from. This is because you would get exactly the same sample values if you had two sine curves at twice the frequency or four at four times the frequency as you would miss every other or three out of four samples, respectively. Think of it as drawing a circle. If you have three points that don't lie on the same line, you can draw a specific circle and only that specific circle. But the original circle could have been drawn once, 
twice or 50 times and you have no way to know. Since you can't hear anything above 20,000 Hz, we don't need to record more than 40,000, twice the highest level we care about. So that is roughly what a CD contains. The sound level, recorded 44,000 times a second, for each of the two stereo channels. Why 44,000? Because if the world isn't perfect, your stereo is even less so. The extra is for that very scientific concept known as wriggle room. Okay, so that explains how a computer can store sound, and maybe how it's recorded. But how does it play it? Simply, through a speaker. The number in the CD audio gets converted through a DAC, digital to audio converter, to an analog signal, and that is how much power you move through the speaker. Since the speaker can't move infinitely fast, the physical act of moving the speaker causes it to interpolate between the two points, recreating the sound that was originally recorded. The downside is that this takes up a lot of storage. An album would be 700 megabyte if we ripped the CD straight to the computer. That was totally justified in the 1980s and 1990s, because making the CD wasn't very expensive, and the simplicity of the format meant the CD players became relatively inexpensive and therefore commonplace. This is an example of a space-time trade-off, and it will not be the last time we hear about it on the podcast. It is a trade-off that we often do in programming. When space is cheap, and space on a CD is cheap, but the work on the data is not, we tend to spend more memory to save on computing. However, when you want the music on the computer, taking up as much as an entire hard disk for one CD just won't do. On the computer, storage was expensive, but it is also much more powerful than your CD player, so the trade-off was just not there. Something different was needed. Enter the MP3. Originally, it was specified as the third and most complicated audio option in the first standard for video broadcasting. In practice, it's far more famous as the music format that made it practical to share your music, strangers on Napster, and with yourself for that boring school trip. The key difference between MP3s and CDs is that MP3s are lossily compressed. That is, there is a loss of information when you convert your CD to MP3. Audiophiles hate this. But for most people, they either cannot hear the change at all, or don't care. The second, less important difference, is that the simplistic way CD audio is stored is very space inefficient. That is why FLAC, or Free Lossless Audio Codex, exists. Unlike MP3, there is no loss of information here. You could convert the flag back to the same audio sound, but it still only takes up around half the same file as CD audio. An MP3 typically takes up about one-tenth of the CD. That, unfortunately, 
also means that the MP3 encoding process is far more complex than that of the CD. It is so complex that I can only give a general overview. How can this be? Well, remember back when we recorded sound waves by sampling them? What if, instead, we recorded the actual frequencies of the sound? That isn't as straightforward as recording the sound levels. For example, there isn't a simple number of frequencies that sound can be composed of. If you're decomposing a podcast, there may only be a few. If you're decomposing an orchestral performance, there may be many. Storing a set of frequencies takes less space than storing the actual sample. How can you decompose the music? Through my old nemesis, the infamous Fast Fourier Transform. It is, however, too difficult to explain in this podcast, so I put a link to a 3-blue-1-brown YouTube video in the show notes. The video explains it well. MP3 has another trick up its sleeve. What if we don't work on the original sound, but on one that is approximately the same? That is, you try to create a simple sound that is very close to the original, then optimize that. What you get is much better compression, at the cost of only slightly less sound quality. Once you have created this simpler audio and decomposed it into its components, what can you do with it? Well, you can start by throwing away some of it. The sounds you hear are the sounds of the frequencies, but if you have a frequency that is played at very low volume, it doesn't contribute much to the overall experience, so it can be cut. How much you can cut depends on how loud the rest of the sounds are at that particular point. If you have a very loud and a very soft sound close to that, you can also remove the soft sound. The human ear can't adjust that quickly. The other thing is the high notes, or at least the high frequencies. I said that humans can hear between 20 and 20,000 hertz, but the truth is that the higher frequencies, about 16,000 or so, can't really be heard by adults, because our hearing has degraded. And by adults, I don't just mean middle-aged people. At that point, you can expect to be down to as little as 14,000 at the high level. So, when we encode the MP3, we can cut away anything above 16,000 or so. It was a bit of an eye-opener for me, but the MP3 standard doesn't actually specify what you can do with the input sound once you have simplified the music in the first place so different encoders can use different variations of these techniques. Once you have removed things that are hard to hear, why not approximate the sound again? Then, finally, write the frequencies out to the mp3 file. Because if you do that, you have the basics of the mp3 encoding. I had to skip over a lot of details, otherwise this episode would be excessively long and I would probably bore you all to death. Anyway, so if you encoded an mp3, which took a lot of computational power, great. Now you have to play it. Fortunately, that is a lot easier, because all you have to do is convert the frequencies back into sound levels and play that. There is no need for any approximations. That is a lot less work than encoding the mp3s in the first place, which is why we had the portable music revolution 
around the turn of the millennium. If you only need to encode MP3s, all you need is a few digital signal processing chips and that is cheap enough and uses little enough battery, the entire ecosystem started to spring up. Of course, the iPod is the most famous, but those of us who had little less money than that could buy inexpensive MP3 players as well. I had one that just worked as a USB pen and could store music on and then it used a standard AAA battery to power it to play the music. It even had a headphone jack. Now then, we have covered the most common ways in which you can store music and podcasts. Those are very important, or so I hear. But how do you actually play the cursed things? Surprisingly, much in the same way you recorded them. A microphone uses magnets to record the changes in air pressure and convert them into electronic signals. A speaker converts electronic signals into changes in air pressure using magnets. Of course, the speaker is analog and so uses analog signals, but that's pretty simple to fix using a component known as a DAC, or digital to analog converter. It pretty much does what it says on the thin and just allows you to set a digital number for how much output it should produce. The bigger the number you use, the more accurately you can control the analog signal. But it has nothing to do with the volume of the music. CD quality requires 16-bit DACs. If you have ever encountered the phenomenon of 8-bit music on YouTube, you know why 8-bit is not enough. 16-bit is a bit or what is necessary. With 16-bit, you can set the analog signal to over 64,000 different values, which your ear is very unlikely to hear. And I imagine you would need a very good speaker to work with. However, storage was cheap and using a whole number of bytes made decoding easy, so it was done that way. There you have the gist of it. You can store sound recording as simple data files or as far more complex MP3 encoded files and then convert them back through a simple digital to analog converter and a speaker or a headset. Well, if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please write to me at feedback at techwithtommy.com. That is feedback at techwithtommy.com. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode, and until then, stay curious.